Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Gita Gundabir has been there, done that. With more than 25 years in the film industry, she is an Emmy and Peabody award-winning director, producer, and editor, and all-around creative heavyweight. She's worked on a range of films, narratives, documentaries, focusing on racial justice, social inequity, and gender. Listing all her credits would take the better part of a day, so here's a brief overview. Gita co-directed and co-produced a Conversation on Race series with the New York Times Op Docs. Co-directed and edited Remembering the Artist Robert De Niro Sr. with Perry Peltz for HBO. Editing credits include Mr. Dynamite, The Rise of James Brown. Whoopi Goldberg presents Moms Mabley for HBO by the people, the election of Barack Obama. Her 2020 short film, Call Center Blues, was shortlisted for a 2021 Oscar. Gita recently directed an episode of the five-part series of the Asian Americans for PBS. It won a 2021 Peabody. There's the six-part series, Why We Hate for Discovery, the HBO doc, I Am Evidence, which won a 2019 Emmy. Also, Armed with Faith, which aired on PBS and won the News and Documentary Emmy. In 2017, Gita directed an episode of the Netflix series, The Rapture, about rap artist Rhapsody. She was co-producer on the HBO film, The Sentence. That won an Emmy in 2019. And last, but so not least, is Black and Missing. This four-part doc series on HBO follows two sisters-in-law who are founders of Black and Missing Foundation as they take matters into their own hands to expose Black missing person cases that are marginalized by the national media and law enforcement. The series, which took almost three years to make, takes on new urgency, giving the renewed conversation on missing white women syndrome. So let's meet and get to know Gita Gundabir. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Thank you so much for having me. Do you do nothing ever? <laughs> I'm actually, that's what I'm planning. I'm planning to try to do that through the end of this year. I've, I've decided, I don't know if you've seen the New York Times article about the movement in China where young people are lying flat where they're sort of quitting their jobs and lying flat on their backs, <laughs> right, yeah. you know, and taking pictures and posting it on social media. That was something I seriously, <laughs> that is so appealing. And I'm, I'm going to try to do that through the end of the year. That was my big plan and through the holidays. You know, when I was going through your bio and reading all about you, <laughs> the two biggest words that came up were, Oy vey! you know, and, <laughs> and then this and that and this. Why do you do what you do? So I came up with in some incredible mentors. I started out with Spike Lee, and he is probably one of the hardest working people in this industry, and also um, one of the most opinionated. You know, his films always have a you know a perspective, and are always he has always fought against the system and been a real you know sort of revolutionary as far as trying to uplift the voices of his community. And mm -hmm. um, Sam Pollard also is my mentor, kind of a giant in our community and an, uh, an amazing elder and a really, really close friend now after all these years. And they trained me. They, they, were, they were my teachers and mentors. And I think it's kind of their legacy that uh, I'm inspired by. And I feel like I also have a lot of immigrant guilt about doing, um, being useful, which is a, uh -huh. the biggest insult in my culture is to be referred to as useless. So uh -huh. I think there's, 
the idea of making a difference in the world matters. And I sort of fell in love with documentary filmmaking because again, you know, there's that, that sort of cliche of truth is stranger than fiction. And that I have found to be absolutely true. But then on top of that, it, it feels to me like I want to leave this world having done something that maybe mattered, like maybe tried to make it, make it a better place. So yeah, make a difference. Let's go back before Spike Lee. What inspired you from the get-go? Is this always something new that I want to tell stories or I want to educate people? Where did all that come from? Yes. So my, so interestingly, my first love was animation. And, um, as a small child, I used to love animated films and I actually studied art and animation in college. And there, you know, obviously films and animation, it's all sequential storytelling, but storytelling always really mattered to me. I think it's also a cultural thing. There's a rich tradition of oral history um, in my community. And then also my mother was a writer, or is still a writer. I think storytelling for her was a, you know, a really aware way of sharing, a way of raising awareness, you know, was such an important facet in education. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again for for my community. So I think all of those things really inspired me. With storytelling, the ability to to generate empathy, the ability to connect, the ability to to bring people together, you know, storytelling is, seems like an and I believe is an incredible tool for us to use. You can you you'll see like again, people will watch see a film about something and it will change their lives. You know, just like and and again, storytelling comes in many forms. It could be writing, it could be visual art, you know, it can be film. But I feel like. It's, it's, it's a part of who we are as human beings. It's what makes us human. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in the, uh, the Boston area and my parents migrated uh, from India in the 1960s. They were sort of this, you know, this new wave of immigrants that came after the Chinese Exclusion Act was, was lifted and they, uh, they came over. My father studied here in the U.S. and in Canada, and then um, my mother followed. So, and we were raised in, in that area, which was this was in the seventies. Uh-huh. So it was a you know an interesting and complicated time, and we were some of the first. You know, again, there's been migrants, Indian migrants, to the country uh, since since much further back. But sure, sure. We were part of this first new wave that came over at that time. And what kind of an impact did that have, not only on your parents, but on your family as a whole? I I, I don't know. I wouldn't say it was, ex- it was not extremely difficult. No, I think, but I do think there was, um, we were definitely different. <laughs> we were, yeah, but, yeah. you know, we, we found, uh, of course, as as many immigrants do, we found others from the same community and made sure to bond and made sure, you know, those were the family friends that we were raised with who were, you know, they're, they were like, we had cousins, you know, in that community who I'm, you know, still are our cousins today. And then my father proceeded to bring over a lot of members of his family who he has a very large set of brothers and sisters and he he proceeded to bring them over. And so we all lived together in an extended family. And in a way that was kind of, it was a wonderful experience. It was how we would have lived in India. There were many of us in the house, many, many children. So it was wonderful for us. I mean, the neighbors did complain 
we did, I mean, there was definitely Boston is a, again, a complicated place. There was definitely racism that oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. we dealt with, but I don't think you as a kid and some of it overt, some of it, uh, again, more implicit, but I think as a kid, you don't quite, you don't realize it until later sometimes, you know, you do, you, re- you understand that you're seen differently and treated differently, but you don't quite, you know, I, I don't think I realized until I left you know, you sort of can look back at the good and the bad and go, oh, that's what that was, you know, and that right, was not normal right. or that was not appropriate. I was into animation, but yes, so what? I mean, you know, to say that animation attracted you is one thing, but to then to feel the confidence and the drive to pursue it is a whole other ball game. And forgive the gender part of this, but wasn't being female an issue as you were getting involved in schooling and in your career? Definitely. It's interesting being female. I knew nothing about the industry, um, too, because my parents were in the sciences. We had no connection to anything here, you know, or anybody who was doing that sort of work or in the industry at all. So it was, it definitely felt like I had to carve my own path. No one could, there was nobody to help me, if you want to put it that way. There was no mentoring. I was fortunate enough. I went to SUNY Purchase, which oh. um, here in New York, which is an incredible art school. And I think that's really where any connections I created were, you know, were made. Um, I basically was able to get a job there. My roommate was the son of this incredible animation artist, Suzanne Pitt, who has since passed, but I was able to get work with her and I was terrible. I was a terrible employee. (laughs) She was very (laughs) patient with me. I didn't know what I was doing half the time. I felt sorry for you. So she thought I'll just, you know. Yeah. But so she was (laughs) a connection into that world. And I, I, you know, I learned from her. I worked with her through college and then after college. And then I happened to, she was teaching at Harvard University. And I, after I graduated, I was working there for her in her offices, you know, on her personal films. And Spike Lee was teaching there and I ran into him on campus and I was so desperate to, you know, I was living in my parents' basement. I was so desperate to get to, you know, I knew my job at Suzanne was going to end because she was moving to Wisconsin. And so I introduced myself to him on the campus and, you know, I was a huge fan of his work and asked him if he would hire me. I definitely had to fend for myself. And then I think once I started, I didn't, but I didn't really encounter sort of the trials and tribulations of, um, of, you know, sexism Uh until I actually started working in the bigger industry, like working for Suzanne, I was very sheltered. But then once I entered the bigger industry, absolutely. It was, you know, there were definitely issues of, um, of harassment. There were issues of being seen as good enough for this job for to be an assistant position, but maybe not, right. you know, to give us to, a time frame. What years are you talking about? So this was the early nineties. I started 90s. working mm-hmm. in 1992. And what's interesting is I, there were a lot of women and one of my mentors too is Tula Goenka. She was, so, so Spike made the connection between animation and um, sequential art and editing. And so he actually gave me a position, um, like an internship in the edit room on the film Malcolm X. And the assistant editor on that film is an incredible woman named Tula Goenka. And she was, and remains, she is now professor at Syracuse University, but incredibly fierce, 
no nonsense, you know, like ran a very tight ship mm-hmm. and she kind of took me under her wing. Cause she, I think she felt I was kind of hopeless and lost. And she also <laughs> took me under her wing and was like, this is how it's done. So I got incredible mentorship from her. And then after that, I worked with her and Sam Pollard and Sam was nothing but wonderful and remains that way. And Tula sort of schooled me uh, on how to kind of manage myself and how to, how to, to get around some of just the, the, the overt sort of sexism that would come up. I think where the most difficult, you know, the part of it is really, because there's obviously the micro and macro aggressions that happen in the workplace itself, but you really still see it in the industry and who's where the power lies, right? Like oh, yeah. who, who's, who are the executives? Who's in charge? Who's in, who uh, has, you know, who decides what gets funded? Where does the money go? And to who does it go? You know, again, like how many female-led production companies are there that are doing the kind of, you know, business? Of course. Oh, absolutely. The male-led companies are doing, you know? And when you look at, I mean, documentary film is a little bit more equitable. There are a lot more women directing Mm -hmm. and producing Mm -hmm. and sort of in key positions. But, you know, when you go into the bigger budget films, which are Hollywood films, the numbers are ridiculous. Move the needle already. There's a similar issue when it comes to race. Again, that you know, there's right. this sort of, it's really about the will. Like, you know, there is no question that it can be done. You know, you can absolutely create a more equitable playing field. Um, you can absolutely hire more women and more BIPOC people, but it's about the will. And I think what we have encountered, there's resistance to it that comes in the form of, oh, but we don't know how to, how, how do we do this? You know, like there are, there's some of the, sometimes, you know, the, the questions that come up around it are really surprising. Or we, we can't find anyone or like the, the excuses are inexcusable. And honestly, you see, (laughs) just to be, to be frank, and you, you know, there's, you so oftentimes see incredibly mediocre, uh, particularly mediocre white men fail up, you know, in our system. But, you know, whereas BIPOC people and women are just, you know, again, the, the amount of time they have to put in and the accolades they have to have Mm -hmm. to get the same, you know, sort of to the same level is insane. Like we are held to much, much higher standards and it's incredibly um, unfair to this day. As much as you have done working on documentaries, did that speak to you more than features you've edited, produced and directed features? But does one genre reach out to you more than another? I have not directed a feature narrative yet. I would love to, but okay. I haven't yet. And so that's actually something that I'm thinking of down the line. And because narrative was my original, you know, I've edited on narratives and I have done that. So I've done that sort of work, but I have not directed yet. And I would, um, I would certainly, a lot of us, it's interesting in the doc world are crossing over, you know, are making that cross and, and the reverse also, you suddenly see a lot of like narrative directors doing documentaries. Yeah. So I I think there is, um, you know, people always are curious about what's happening on the other side. And I, I think that's wonderful. This kind of fluidity that's beginning to happen now. But I think it's funny. Narrative was probably my first love because um, because it's what I started in, and I, I love the creativity that you can put it into because you're creating a world. And with documentary, obviously, there's you have to there's 
in both, I mean, in both of them there are, but there's still, there's ethics that you really have to think about when you're dealing with people's real lives. There's journalistic integrity. There's just, in some ways, documentary is much more challenging because you have to, you cannot take liberties in the way that you can with a narrative. Song. Well, the other thing so, about that too is, and I've said this so many times that I'm boring myself with, but I so believe it. The power of a documentary film just can't be overstated in terms of educating and exposing and enlightening people. I mean, what a great way to learn about life. Your most recent endeavor, Black and Missing, explain how that was birthed. Sure. So actually... I worked with Soledad O'Brien's company um, on a film called Hungry to Learn, which was sort of a passion project. It's about college, still actually available. You can find it online, but it's about college students like going hungry in try and while trying to make it through college about food scarcity and food insecurity among college students and the, the incredibly, you know, the incredibly high cost of college the challenges of that and and what that does to this sort of our future if our children are unable to make it through college. I worked on that project with them. And then this was a project that they had actually come up with that they had wanted to do. So that it began with them. And because we had a relationship, we spoke about me being involved. And then I have a long history with HBO, which has been wonderful. And um, the executives at HBO, Sarah Rodriguez and uh, Nancy, and Lisa, who are, you know, again, I've known for years, they asked me to come on board as well. And so that's how it began. And I think the issue to me was incredibly important. Um, it's a four-part documentary series that focuses on two women, their sister-in-laws, Derricka Wilson and Natalie Wilson, and they run an organization called Black and Missing. And through their advocacy work, they try to locate missing people, um, essentially by raising awareness about them. And this is specific to missing people of color. Right. It's a homegrown organization, DC-based. It's just the two of them and a handful of volunteers. So it's really a story of um, incredible struggle and perseverance and also um just the determination i was just gonna say determination yeah determination incredible determination and and love uh, that derica and natalie have for their community and they have said to me if they don't do this work who will and (laughs) you know again they're addressing the sort of systemic gaps that exist for the black community when it comes to Uh, missing people. You know, there are issues of police neglect and there's also issues of police abuse that that impact the way that their cases are treated. There's media neglect, as, you know, we've seen recently as the series, as we're preparing to release it, the Gabby Petito. Gabby Petito. Oh, man. um, Nobody else was missing but Gabby Petito. There was nobody else. And and it's a tragic story. I mean, For sure. Absolutely. And domestic violence is one of the leading causes Mm -hmm. of women going Mm -hmm. missing. You know, I hate to say like, I've learned something on this. It's just, you know, what a threat to our lives, domestic violence is. Well, it's almost Um, de rigueur, you know, like what? So what, you know? Yes, yes, yes. And just, if you see, there is this thing, you know, which we explore it in the series, which Gwen Eiffel terms the the name missing white women syndrome. And it's really just the, the lack of attention that is given to, to anyone else who goes missing, who isn't a pretty young 
white woman, you know, the media is really responsible for not paying attention or not highlighting these other cases the way that they should. So, so there are so many things. Then there's also the systemic issues that Derek and Natalie are trying to tackle um, in other ways. But there's the incredible issue of poverty, which leads to mental illness, which leads to, which that is, you know, one of the biggest struggles within the community that um, those challenges often lead to, to people going missing. We talk about just the, the burdens that on Black women who are in some ways the most undervalued in our society as far and as... And marginalized. Again, I keep and marginalized. that word because it just yes. is so apt. Yes. And this is, again, we're talking about a society that ultimately the foundation of which is is white supremacist and Mm -hmm. anti-Black, right? So this is the, you know, again, we're not saying that this is, that in any way, Black women's lives do not matter. We are saying that the the way that our society is set up and structured inherently, they are terribly, their lives and the issues that they face, it's, they're terribly devalued. Mm -hmm. And Derek and Natalie as these sort of, you know, just these two women who are mothers, who are, you know, even grandmothers, you know, who are they're yeah, like, well, yeah. Natalie is a grandmother, I should say, Derek is not. But they are really, you know, and dealing with their own lives. They were also they work full time. And then they're also they're they're running this organization and trying to handhold people from their community through these struggles. Also and also raise awareness just about missing people that they don't, you know, that they maybe are not connected with, but just trying to amplify. You know, they're really quite inspirational and it felt like an incredibly worthy topic. For Why a did it take three years to make? So, so we began production. Basically we were working on it in the fall of 2019. So I actually was not, so 2019, I should say, uh, I guess, I guess you could say that. I guess you could say three years, but so 2019 um, was development and okay. then it got greenlit by HBO. And then we actually started in earnest, you know, as far as production, pre-production, I should say, in the fall of 2019. So there was work that was happening before that, prior to me coming Mm -hmm. on. Then we started shooting in the beginning of 2021, after January. And then the pandemic hit hit in March. And we shut down in March of uh, 2021. We had shot for six weeks. And then we had about a six-month hiatus. And then we came back after that with much trepidation, trying to figure out how to work and how to keep it. You know, again, we're dealing with one of the most vulnerable communities. So how do we keep, I know the BIPOC communities are the most vulnerable. So the question is, how do we do this and keep people safe? And what is ethical? You know, what are Mm. they comfortable with? But we proceeded. I mean, what's interesting is that everyone still wanted these their stories out there. So with these incredibly brave and resilient families and with Derek and Natalie. And we uh, made it through. There were challenges. There was, you know, there were issues. We had multiple things happen. There were snowstorms. There were locusts. If you remember <laughs> the locusts, the locusts came out. And like the every 27-year locust yes, sort of, yeah, yeah, right. uh, you know, That's renaissance right. that happened. The yeah. locusts showed up and made so much noise in the background right. that it was a problem. And they were also, <laughs> yeah, they were also attacking our you know, our crew who, you know, were trying to film outside and then the locusts would just land on them. 
So they would be covered in locusts, which was horrendous. And they wanted and the credits, was, right? They wanted the rolling yeah, credits. It was awful. And then we had also two, there was the January 6th insurrection, which uh, delayed our shooting a bit. Oh, yes, there I was, heard about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> that small event. Because yeah. most of our shooting was in the DMV area. Um, so it just was, you know, there were, it seemed like there were kind of insurmountable odds. It was almost the exact opposite of the stars were all aligned. They were actually all misaligned. The stars were, but, but I have to say, I have an amazing, amazing team of, um, also other directors, all women, uh, Samantha Knowles, who, was with me through this entire process. She was also a producer on this and just could not have been braver. And then I had Yoruba Richin and Nadia Halgren, who also participated. They were directors. They did the interviews. Um, and then a really brave team of women. Again, all women. Nimko Shikadden, who was my uh, is a co-producer on the film, and Hala Cunningham, who is a an AP. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. were just, they would not give up. They were like, locusts, no locusts, we're going. Snowstorm, <laughs> insurrection, we're going. Like, they were determined mm-hmm. because they were so passionate about the issue. And I was very proud that we assembled to, you know, again, representation really matters to me. And we assembled a mostly BIPOC team, which is just to make sure that we had folks on the team who were representative of the community, sensitive to the issues of the community, et cetera, et cetera. Do you work with the same group of people often? I'm always very excited to work with new people. And I think it's incredibly important to lift up those who come, you know, open the door for those who come after us and make sure that they have the opportunities that's how we make a more equitable playing field, again, for women and, and BIPOC folks. Well, as empowering it's, as it's been for me, because I have, through this podcast, met and interviewed a lot of female directors, and that's really terrific. However, dot, 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 despite what year it is and how many years have passed, it's still a bit of a slog. And it just you just want to scream, move the freaking needle, man. Over the summer of 2020, there was a group... That, that I'm part of called Beyond Inclusion. And we're sort of a group of concerned <laughs> film and probably fed up, concerned filmmakers and ex- executives and sort of people from all kind of walks of the industry, but who've come together around this issue of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I've had, I've been a very outspoken about the issue for the last, you know, I think I've always had something to say about these issues, but it's usually been within the workspace that I'm in, mm-hmm. you know, I've always, you know, sort of been the the shrill person in the room, always saying like, but what about, we need more women, we need more people, of, you know, BIPOC people, we need more, you know, there's nobody from the LGBTQ community on our team, you know, we can do better. The onus is on us. It's, it's critical that we do better. You but know, does it freak you out that he keeps saying it? I mean, you know. No, the- no, it's, 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 I feel like I've gone gray saying it but at the same time unless you do it you know you it's it's like i think about derek and natalie who their organization shouldn't have to exist but if you don't do it who will do it when i was younger and i was starting out it was terrifying to speak out about these things and to be the loud mouth and the rabble Mm -hmm. rouser Mm -hmm. and the you know the troublemaker because you don't know if you you have to eat and you're like well will i work again and what will happen to me and i think i'm sort of at an age now there's an age where you give (laughs) you give less you know of a certain curse word and you you know you're also maybe a little bit more established so you can kind of take those risks 
you know, and you know that some people will stand with you, even though you may lose others. But the, so, but the determination, because it, when you're going back in the day about what it was like for you when you started out, and we're not talking about the 1800s, I mean, of course, but, but my, <laughs> my, my point being that there were not a whole lot of people on the sidelines for you, Spike Lee notwithstanding, and some of the other people that you mentioned. Um, but even with that, it still was climbing a mountain. Yeah, it was, it was climbing a mountain. It was climbing a mountain. I do think in the dock industry, because people work on, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, the dock industry considers itself the most woke in the industry, you know, as far Mm -hmm. as, you know, it's Mm -hmm. a lot of people working on a lot of social justice issues. And in some ways it's easier to push things, you know, it's easier to be, to sort of speak out about these issues because we see ourselves as sort of social justice warriors otherwise. So it's like to, to ask everybody to look internally, it's still painful, but it's, you know, it's, um, people respond to it a little bit better, you know? And mm. I, but I think when you get outside, it's becoming, the doc industry too is becoming very corporate. So the- Is that a good thing? I, I think that's, there. it's it's problematic as you know. Oh, it's a mixed there, bag. There's, there's, it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. Because in some ways it's amazing that there's so many more opportunities for documentaries because it used to be just PBS and then it was PBS and HBO. Right, 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 right. And if your doc didn't find a home with either of those, you were on your own. Now there's so many venues that are into it that there's so much more work. And that's incredible. So that that just means more work, more chances for your film to get seen, more platforms. All of that is wonderful. The corporatization, though, is a little bit alarming because Mm. it does, I think, you know, as, as we know recently, there have been, you know, a lot of concerns about the big streamers sort of monopolizing um, yes, mm-hmm. monopolizing the you know the platforms, mm-hmm. and I think that with that comes the question of like what will we be watching and who's determining mm-hmm. it and and where does the money go? Right, those are those those problems still exist. Ultimately, it's all about the money, and and some of the you lose some of the doc industry has expanded at this incredible rate with no guidelines in place, right? No ethical mm-hmm. guidelines. So I think that's the thing that a lot of us are trying to focus on and work on. There's a, a lot of incredible organizations doing this work. There's ADOC, which is the community of Asian filmmakers. There's uh, the Black Documentary Collective. There's new a new organization called the Color Congress. And then there's our group, Beyond Inclusion. And there's the Brown Girls Doc Mafia. But there's so many organizations working to sort of make sure that we're going down the right path. And I think it's really about making sure we listen to them. Have you ever thought of telling your story? I think I'm telling it to you, right? Yeah, you are. <laughs> yes, you are verbally. <laughs> <laughs> but you mean my own, like making a movie about, yeah. about it? Mm-hmm. No, honestly, I have not. I have not because I feel like, you know, I'm not that interested in it. That's probably why. Oh, I think well. it's, you know, but because for me, it's like, oh, it's my story. It's boring. Well, (laughs) let us be the judge of that, for heaven's sake. Thank you. I always ask this question. I should really, you know, change it up a little bit, but I can't help myself. If I was your fairy godmother, Gita, what would you ask of me? I've been thinking a lot about a narrative film. I have a narrative film in in my mind that I'd love to make. So that's the thing that I have a number of dream projects that, um, that are documentary and I'm excited about those, but I've been missing narrative interestingly for a while. So I have a, a narrative film 
that I'd love to make. So that's the thing that I'm looking to do. I have a sort of community of friends and we have teenagers. When Trump was elected and then when once the pandemic hit, especially, there was a lot of going to leave the city going upstate, right? Leaving the city and going upstate to in New York where we, you know, to sort of just have a chance to get away. You know, a lot of people were seeking other places to be, also to be out of crowded spaces. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is for BIPOC folks, the experience was, and particularly for our teenagers, the experience of that was not necessarily always pleasant. And their perspective was that, interestingly, was that it was almost a little bit like a horror film. Like they were, huh. and it's it's in the vein of, um, I think about films like Get Out, right? Which is really about the, the experience of BIPOC folks in traditionally white spaces. And sometimes the hostility you face and, yeah. and mm. also the sense of threat and danger. And so I'm interested in making a film. The film that I'm thinking about is about that issue. What does it mean for BIPOC folks to be in these spaces and mm-hmm. and how they feel about it? So as you look back over this rich and rewarding career, that must give you pause, joy, what? No, all of it. I feel, honestly, I feel... What do you want me to say at your, at, for your eulogy? My eulogy. So I feel... I feel that I have been incredibly fortunate in my career, particularly, and and just in the experiences I've had working in this industry as somebody who came from a place where there were, I had no connections to it. I had no understanding of it. I, Mm -hmm. you know, no background Mm -hmm. in it. Yeah. Total outsider. And I was able to, and to be able to make a living doing something you love Oh man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a blessing. You know, I I think many of us growing up, I didn't think that was an option. You know, I didn't know that was an option that I could make a living as an artist. You know, it seemed impossible. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or I was told, I was told it was impossible. (laughs) Let's put it that way. So I, I feel incredibly lucky and I feel like, you know, and I love this industry deeply and I'm really, I feel like the work, again, the work that I am, even though it can be frustrating at, at times, the work that I'm I'm doing and many of those around me are doing to try to change it is really to make it better. It's really like a garden you have to maintain, right? It's not just mm-hmm. that it's done mm-hmm. and we're there. You have to constantly right. maintain it. But to continuing that fight is about making it a better place. I want it to be better for the young people coming up behind me. You know, they shouldn't have to go through what I went through or what anybody mm-hmm. before me went through. Gita, it was such a pleasure to meet and get to know you. And I really believe that the world could do with a lot more Gita Gundabirs. And I ask that you keep us in your loop. We'd love to hear back from you if there's anything that you're working on that you'd like to share with us. Oh, please just uh, give a holler, man. Don't have Thank you so calls. much. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. 